Hello and thank you for listening. This is Rich Goodman, Head of Capital Development for Toronto Stock Exchange and TSX Venture Exchange. Welcome to TMX Presents, the podcast. This is where we have conversations with capital markets leaders from around the world. We look to gain insights from the influential decision makers and visionary entrepreneurs helping to shape the future business landscape. As Head of Capital Development for Canada's largest equity exchanges, my role is to unlock global pools of capital for listed issuers on the TSX and TSX Venture Exchange. In today's episode, we're going to talk about diversity investing, corporate governance, and social justice on Bay Street with Wes Hall. Entrepreneur, investor, role model, corporate advisor, power broker, philanthropist, dragon, and social justice warrior. Those are just a few ways to describe Wes Hall. He started from very humble beginnings to become a titan in corporate Canada. As founder of Kingsdale Advisors, Wes has advised some of Canada's largest corporate transactions. Before becoming a household name as a dragon on Dragon's Den, Wes was a recognized leader in shareholder advisory services and proxy solicitation. He employs hundreds of people as owner of companies like QM Environmental, and Wes is also well known for his philanthropy, leadership, and is a strong voice for social justice in corporate Canada. Welcome, Wes, and thank you for joining us today. Rich, thanks for having me. Real pleasure. So, Wes, you started in Jamaica as a kid, moved to Toronto as a teenager. Your story is just fascinating to me and how you built your success. Maybe you can take me through that transition. Well, my book coming out October 5th, No Bootstrap, When You're Barefoot, is a fascinating tale of really how I started from growing up in a tin shack, literally in rural Jamaica, St. Thomas. My grandmother worked at a sugarcane plantation, a banana plantation, a coconut plantation, depending on the season there in Jamaica. And I have 14 brothers and sisters, and it's a very, very small town. And I never really thought that would ever leave that small town ever because my grandmother lived there. My grandfather died there. My grandmother died there. My brothers and sisters, a lot of them still live there. Some of them died there and they never left. So for me, I just thought that I was going to be a plantation worker like my grandmother, like my grandfather, like my brothers and sisters. And Canada was just like a distant dream. I knew my dad was there, but I never really thought that one day would actually get the opportunity to come to Canada. So September 27th, 1985, my dad said, it's time for you to come live with me here in Canada. And that changed my life, really. Wow. I love the book plug, and I look forward (laughs) to reading it. Your next big transition, Wes, was from law clerk to uh, corporate savior. But before we get to that, before you became a law clerk, You took on some pretty strange jobs, didn't you? (laughs) I sure did. So when I I came here, as I mentioned, September 27th, 1985, it was a Friday. I went to school on Monday, Lester B. Pearson in Scarborough. So Malvern at the time was a tough neighborhood. It still is today, but it was tough back then. And they put me in the ESL program, Rich, ESL, English as a Second Language. And the reason they put me in that program was because of the fact that I had this very thick Jamaican accent. 
realistic. So when I when the teachers would ask a question, I put my hand up and I would say what the answer was, and nobody could understand what I was saying. So they go, "This kid needs to go into ESL." And my dad, fortunately, that I had him around, then he go, "No, no, no, it doesn't belong in ESL," and got me into a regular stream. But I was really a, a goofball in high school. I was. I came here. I was in grade nine. I was living on my own when I was in Jamaica before I came to Canada. So I was calling my own shots. And then I now had to start school, high school here. So I was really goofing around. My senior year of high school, after living with my dad for two years, I left and moved out. And I go, let me go figure out how to uh, build a life for myself. And uh, I got a job as a chicken catcher at the Maple Lodge Farms. My job was to actually catch the chickens and put them down an assembly line for them to get slaughtered. I didn't like that job too much, so I went to the HR department and said, I need another job. They put me on the assembly line to vacuum the inside of chickens. And after doing that for, I don't know, maybe an hour, I sat there and I go, I'm going to be doing this for nine hours a day with a 15-minute break in the morning a half an hour lunch break and 15 minutes in the afternoon. And that's going to be my life. And I go, I got to go back to school, man. I got to figure out something else because this is not going to cut it for me. And I quit that job. And that's when I started to plan what's next for West Hall, because that's not it. And that next thing was becoming a law clerk. Yeah, Rich, I didn't really start off being a law clerk. I was at the time I was a security guard and a buddy of mine applied for a job on Bay Street and they called him up and said, listen, I'm, we have a job for you in the mailroom. And he said, I already have a job, but I have a friend of mine who's looking to change jobs. And he called me up, gave me the details. The HR manager called me and hired me on the spot. Because at the time, you could just, you just have to have a pulse to get a job. It's almost like how we're living today, whereby there's just a plethora of jobs for people to choose from. It was the same thing back then. And I took the position in the mailroom of a law firm on Bay Street. And that's my first experience with Bay Street. That's where I saw this amazing life that you and I are part of today. The capital markets, the uh, lawyers doing M&A transactions and, and the like. And immediately, even though I was in the mailroom, I go, that's the life I wanted. I want to be a part of this ecosystem. And I was talking to some of the lawyers and they said, hey, there's a program that the company has that you can take and they'll pay for it if you go to take law clerk courses and so on. So I took a program to be a law clerk. When I graduated, they didn't have a position for me at the firm. So I started to send resumes out all over the place. And I got a call from Canwest Global that the general counsel was looking for a right-hand guy. And I went into that job interview with no expectation because I had no experience other than I took the course, but I had no practical experience. But I knew I had to sell this guy really, really hard. And I went in, it was the general counsel and the HR manager at Canvas Global. And at the time, Canvas Global was the largest broadcaster in the country. So think about me walking in there, this young black dude, you know, pitching the HR manager and general counsel to hire me with no experience as a law clerk. And guess what? I got the job. 
And that's what started this journey, really. Glenn O'Farrell, this amazing francophone man that gave me my first big break, and it got me where I'm at today. How long until you decided to go out on your own and open up Kingsdale? So I worked at Canvas Global for five years. It was the best education I could ever have received working under Glenn O'Farrell in that environment. It was a tough environment, but it was the best education a young person, I was in my mid-20s, a young person could receive. And then I went to a CIBC Mellon Trust Company, which was a joint venture between Mellon Bank and CIBC Bank. I worked there for three years until I got a call from this company called Georgeson. And Georgeson had, they just bought a Canadian operation and they were doing proxy solicitation. And it's the loose term whereby they were just calling moms and pops and get them to vote. And after three years at CBC Mellon, the CEO of Georgeson Canada called me up and said, hey, I want to have lunch with you. I had lunch with him. He said, I want you to work for my company, Georgeson. I didn't even know what they did. Essentially, just call shareholders. I don't want to do that for a living. But he was so convincing, I took the job. I took the job as VP business development. I didn't know what I was selling. I didn't know what I was pitching. But I listened really carefully to him and to his colleagues. I learned a lot about the industry. And ultimately, I became their top sales guy, like the top guy to the point where they appointed me VP National Sales for Canada, running sales for the entire Canadian operation of the company. And after working there for a while, I started to do some interesting things to change the way we're doing business. Our fee at the time was typically about $15,000, $20,000, dollars if we're lucky. And I changed that from $30,000, which is the big fee, to the largest fee that I got when I was there was $1.1 million. And the reason why we're, I was able to get that increase in fee was because I started to change the way we were doing business. And instead of focusing on moms and pops, we're focused on providing advice to companies involved in hostile M&As, even friendly mergers and acquisitions. But I went to my management team in New York and I said, listen, we're going to have a change in the environment here in Canada one day. And these activist guys that we see doing things in the U.S., they're going to eventually come to Canada and we should build the business to accommodate working for companies to defend them against activists. And the team said, listen, we have a great business here. We're not going to change our business to accommodate that. Thank you very much, Wes, for your thought. And they decided to shoot the idea down. And at that point, I go, I really strongly believe in this opportunity. And I decided to quit the company to start Kingsdale. That was 2003. Wow. So you basically changed the way they did business, disrupted their revenue model, innovated a new business model. They rejected it and you took it on your own. Yeah. And that's really a lesson for companies when it comes to complacency, right? Georgeson was the only game in town in Canada. They were the only proxy station firm and they had the market cornered, but the market was so much bigger than they thought. It could be. And so when I came up with this idea, all they look at was the cost that would involve in bringing, because my thought was, let's bring investment bankers who didn't want to be investment bankers anymore. Let's bring 
M&A lawyers, securities lawyers who didn't want to practice securities law or M&A deals anymore. And let's train them how to advise companies on issues as it relates to their investors, not just their moms and pops, but their institutional investors. That meant that we have to pay a lot more money to our team because at the time, Georgeson invested millions of dollars in call centers, millions of dollars to call moms and pops. So they would have to completely go away from that business model that they spent all this money on and they couldn't do it. So here I am when I decided to start Kingsdale, I had a clean sheet of paper, clean sheet of paper. If I was going to build this business for the future, how would I build it? So I wrote down everything. I put a business plan together. It was 15 pages. And Rich, I went to all the institutions that would loan money to people like myself with great ideas, all the banks, the investment firms, and not a single one of them looked at that idea and go, it's a good one. They just thought, why would people hire you to do this? Why don't they just get their investment banker or their lawyers to do it? Why would they hire you? And I gave them my rationale. Investment bankers are going to be providing transaction analysis and all these different things. Lawyers are going to be providing document review and drafting documents and so on. But who understands the investor? And ultimately, every single merger has to be approved by investors. It's either it's a plan of arrangement, which means that you have to get a vote. And in a lot of cases, the vote is a two-third vote. Or... It's a a tender offer, which means you have to send your shares in. But in either situation, you must get the support of investors. So the investment bankers may do a fantastic job structuring the deal and putting it together. The lawyers may have done a fantastic job in papering the deal, put all the, the legals together and so on. But ultimately, the investor at home will see the information circular and they now have to make a decision as to whether or not They're going to vote in favor or against. And so what companies were doing at the time, they were just leaving it to chance. So everybody did all this hard work, put this document together, send it to shareholders, and then cross their fingers, hoping that shareholders will read it, understand it, and vote for it. And so I said, no, you can't leave something that important to chance. And we're going to understand what the shareholders need, and we're going to get them to support the transaction and get you the peace of mind that you're looking for. I sold Kingsdale as an insurance policy. You know, you're driving down uh, down the street with your fancy car, and you've been driving for 20 years, never got an accident, ever. Why do you need insurance? Just in case, just in case. But you don't look at insurance and go, it's a waste of money. The just in case is peace of mind. So Kingsdale being an insurance policy was that peace of mind to the CEOs and the board going, we're going to make sure that we hire someone to get this deal done. That's our insurance policy. And essentially, Kingsdale became that quote-unquote insurance policy for companies. And then, of course, activism came to Canada, and then we just got to a completely different level as a result. So you took that idea, and you ultimately became Canada's preeminent proxy solicitation firm. How amazing is it to see that vision come to fruition? I look back 20 years uh, later, and I had a lot of guts to even think that this business would work. But if you ask me today, did I know all the struggles that I would go through to build the firm to where it is today? 
And would I do it again? I probably would tell you no, even though I, I had a lot of fun doing it. There's a lot of sleepless nights, lots and lots of stress involved in what we do. Because think about it. If you're the CEO of a public company, you're doing a great job, and an activist shows up and go, I want to get rid of you. That's your ego. That's your reputation. Your family's looking at you. And then all of a sudden, that activist investor put up an ad in a newspaper telling everybody how incompetent you are. Telling everybody your faults, all your faults, all the things that you've done wrong as a CEO. You open up the Globe and Mail because at the time there would be one page ads that companies, some activists would put out to really chastise the CEO and the company. And everybody's seen you as a failure. And then they hired my firm, Kingsdale, to redeem that person's reputation. There's a lot of stress involved in that. So to us, our original motto was winning means everything. Winning means everything because everything is on the line if you win. You have to win. So we developed our reputation very, very early by putting everything on the line for our clients to make sure that they get that victory, to make sure that that CEO and that board get their reputation restored. You've been involved in quite a number of prominent proxy cases. Any war stories that really stand out? Well, CP Rail is going to go down as the proxy fight in Canada. And I don't think any other proxy fights in this country, I've done hundreds of proxy fights. I don't think any is going to dethrone CP Rail for a number of reasons. Reason number one was CP Rail had the best board on paper that you could ever assemble. It's like you're putting together a basketball team and all the greats are on it. Jordan on it, Dr. J is on it, LeBron James is on it. All the amazing players from every single era that have ever played the game, they're on that team and they're in their prime. How could you lose? But let's say you put that team together and every single game they play, they're losing. Every single game. Then there's something wrong with the team. All of a sudden you have all these talented people, but they can't put it together. And CP was a bit like that. Every single board member on the board of CP Rail were former CEOs of very successful companies. The chairman was the former CEO of RBC. Like all these amazingly accomplished people but yet CP was the worst performing railroad in North America. The worst. Their operating ratio, which is what people use to determine the success of a railroad as a result of that it affects your stock price. CN, I think, was in 59 OR. CP was 82. It was a massive difference between the performance. And when Bill Ackman showed up and said, we think this company can be more efficient, the board goes, no, no, no. This is the best we can do. And the reason why this is the best we can do is because we operate in the West, in Western Canada, and they get crazy snow in the winter, and the grades are steep, and that's the problem. And we had to fight the board. We had to fight that attitude to get Harrison in as the CEO. And I remember meeting with investors, and they were so skeptical. They were saying to us, come on, Hunter. Come on, Bill, the company can't be that bad. To the point where Hunter had to readjust 
his projection downwards because the shareholders go, you're too aggressive. You can't go from 82 to 60 in three years. And guess what? We convince investors, they support the campaign and CP Real, massive success. I think Bill made about $1.8 billion on his investment in like 18 months. So activism worked. Complacency, unfortunately, is a problem. And that's what we see a lot of in corporate Canada. We see that complacency there. And we see low-hanging fruits that people refuse to explore and to make changes because they go, our business is just fine. But guess what? It can be better. And so we've seen so many campaigns that I've worked on where just a few tweaks in the business model creates massive value for, uh, for investors. And sometimes people just refuse to make that tweak. Why? Because it was brought to their attention by an activist investor. And I say to my clients in those situations, it doesn't matter who brings it to your attention. If it's a good idea, take it. Avoid the fight, move on. At Kingsdale, you do much more than proxy solicitation. You have a full service advisory firm, including corporate governance. Yep. What issues do you see out there for both public and private companies on the corporate governance side? It's funny because we've been looking at ESG for a long time. We've been looking at the E, we know what the environment is, and we're seeing a lot of people paying a lot more attention to that. The G, we know what it is. It's the governance. How do you kind of look after this company and making sure that you're a good steward, a good corporate citizen? The S part of that has been neglected for a very, very long time. And I look at the social aspect, S and G, as one and the same. How do you govern yourself when it comes to social issues, for example? So I believe that because companies aren't really paying attention to this S, that is gonna create problems for them in the future, a lot of problems for them in the future. We know diversity means your company's gonna be better performing, everything is gonna be better about your company, but yet there's a lack of motivation by CEOs to implement diversity policies within their organization. Think about a few years ago, Rich, when every single boardroom you walk into, they all look the same, middle-aged white men, no women, no person of color, that's it. How could you think that you're gonna run a company and it's gonna look exactly the same? For example, Abercrombie and Finch had a board that was made up of all middle-aged white men at the time, but they were selling clothing to young, Teenage boys in particular, teenage boys. And there's not a single person on the board that even understand the audience that they're selling to. Of course, an activist showed up later on and shook the company up. But we have to make sure that our board reflects not only the customers we serve, but the stakeholders we serve. And if we're in a diverse society, our organization should be diverse because we're gonna bring different thinking to the table. And as a result of bringing those different perspectives to the table, the company is gonna perform better. So that's what I learned about activism. Activists just come in and they bring a different perspective to the table. And in a lot of cases, those perspective that they bring to the table 
create value for investors. And as a result of that, the investors are happy. Ultimately, the company's happy when they co-opt the idea. Everybody's happy. So I think diversity is going to be a big issue on the governance side that companies aren't paying sufficient attention to. And it's going to become an issue for them if they aren't laser focused on dealing with that issue. That's a fantastic segue to another topic I'd like to ask you about, which is diversity investing. So on the other side, you know, on the investor side, putting yourself as the investor, what do you look for in companies to invest in? Management. So if we go back to CP Rail, for example, CP Rail was the worst performing railroad in the country. In North America, when Bill and Hunter came on board, they didn't build new lines to run the trains. They didn't buy new locomotives or more efficient locomotives. They didn't spend all this capex to fix things. They just took what they had and make it more efficient, operate it more efficiently. That's what they did. So simple things like when CP, the old management was running a company, they would have a car, rail car, at a particular site. And they were supposed to get, get it loaded with grain. But because they were such a great company, they loved their customers. When the car would get there, the grain wouldn't be there. The grain would be there a day later, two days later. And they would load the grain, didn't charge the customer anything, and they move on. But what did that do? It backed up the railroad. It backed it up so they were less efficient. When Hunter came on board, Hunter said, if my car gets there at one o'clock and the grain is not there by 102, I'm going to start charging you a late fee. Everybody was angry with Hunter. How could you do this to us? But guess what? At one o'clock, the grain was there. Load up the cart, moves on. And as a result of that, it didn't gum up the system. The railroad started to operate more efficiently by making very simple changes. And that was all management, all management. So you can have the best business in the world and if it's poorly run, you're gonna lose your shirt. So yes, I wanna make sure that fundamentally the business I'm invested in are sound fundamentally, but I also have to make sure that they have the right people running those businesses. And that's what I support. I support fundamentally good businesses that are run by decent management or good management. The other thing, if you look at activism as well, is activists don't try to find bad companies. They try to find great companies run by poor managers. And then they change the management team and the company started to perform as a result of having the right people on board. You mentioned earlier about social issues and diversity on the boards. You've made it no secret that you look for opportunities to invest in Black-owned businesses. Mm -hmm. Maybe talk for a bit on why this is important to you. I broaden that a bit to BIPOC-owned. Any business that are owned by Black, Indigenous, people of color, I go, let me focus on those businesses. And the reason why I do that is because I'm in my sweet spot, because that's me. The challenge for a lot of those, those entrepreneurs is that they can't get capital like I couldn't when I started. I had this amazing idea. I ultimately created the preeminent firm in Canada. But when I came up with the idea, I couldn't find anyone to back me because they didn't understand me as an entrepreneur. They just didn't get me. 
and they looked at the obstacles that I would face as a person of color. And they go, because of the obstacles that you'll face, I don't know if I want to back you. For example, people would say, there's nobody else like you on Bay Street West. And there's probably a reason why. So I don't know if my money's safe with you. So if I see a BIPOC entrepreneur and I know that they have a solid business, I'm not going to focus on the obstacles that they're going to face. I'm going to support you because, A, you have a solid business, but I also feel that you're the right person to run the business and to take it to whatever level that you think the business can go. But for me, it's easy for me because I look in the mirror when that person's sitting in front of me, it's like me looking in the mirror when I find them. It's like, yep, that's it. And I've supported a number of entrepreneurs over the years, BIPOC entrepreneurs that have been very, very successful, that have created a lot of value for me. And as a result of that, I go, I want to do more of that because there's so many more West Halls out there. We just need to discover them and we need to be focused. We need to be strategic in terms of how we find those people. I didn't know where to turn when I was turned down. I had no clue. Fortunately for me, when I went into the bank, even though the bank, that bank turned me down, I saw a black guy behind a desk and I went to him and he was able, at the time they had flexibility. He was senior enough that he could go inside his organization, plead his case for me. And I was able to get $100,000 to start Kingsdale, mortgage my house. And that's how I started a business. So there's a lot more entrepreneurs like me out there that are just waiting to be discovered, waiting for someone to have confidence in them, to write them a check and say, go get them. And I'm hoping to find as many of those people as I possibly can. No doubt there's a lot of West Hall-like entrepreneurs out there. How do we get more West Hall-like investors? We have to be intentional, Rich. We can't go... I'm going to treat them like everybody else. They're underserved for a reason. So for you to say, for example, if you live in Forest Hill in Toronto, very high-end neighborhood, you were raised in Forest Hill and you go to the bank to get financing, the bank's going to ask you a series of questions. Or you go to an investor, tell me about your background. Oh, my dad was the CEO of this company. My uncle was the CEO of that company. I went to this private school. I'm friends with these people. I go to this golf club and I got the guy from Scarborough, where I was from, go to the same institutions and they ask him exactly the same questions because they're treating both of them the same way, equally. Who's going to get the loan and who's going to be turned down? The guy who the bank's going to go, well, if your father was a CEO, chances are you would have learned a thing or two about how to manage a company sitting at a dining room table. And if that's the circle you're in, you went to the private school, chances are you're going to be learning a thing or two. But that kid who went, uh, lived in Malvern like I did, who went to a public school, Lester B. Pearson, like I did, who struggled through school, took some really crappy job in the summertime, and here I am in front of that institution making the same case as somebody else that didn't do any of those things, I am not going to get that money. I am not going to get that support. So we can't sit there and go, we're going to treat everybody the same way. We have to appreciate where people started. We have to appreciate that. And if you started where I started, and I've done something to get in front of you, just like the person who had such a massive head start, why wouldn't I have the upper hand if I do that, if we go into business together? So 
Back in 2009, I got the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. And I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked that I won. And in the financial services sector, nonetheless. And after, I invited two of the judges to dinner. And I asked them, why did you pick me? Because they had all these, there's like four of us in the category, in the finalist category. One guy worked at Credit Suisse. The other guy worked at another investment bank. The other guy was a, a lifelong entrepreneur and me. And they said to me, the reason why we chose you is because you're a true entrepreneur. Because from where you came from to where you are today, you shouldn't be even mentioned in the same breath as those other people. They had all the building blocks for them to be successful. And if they weren't successful, somebody would say you're a failure. Nobody would call you a failure, Wes, if you didn't, your business didn't work because you weren't meant to be here. And so that's really, when we think about treating people differently, we have to look at where they start. And if we look at where they start and the work that they put in to get in front of you, you have to give at least a little bit of credit to that, to that hard work and tenacity. Let's talk about Wes Hall, the philanthropist. You sit on several boards, Sick Kids Foundation, Pathways to Education, the Black Academy. You founded the Black North Initiative. What of your experience as a philanthropist really stands out for you? A few things. I'm a big supporter of the University of the West Indies. We raise about a million dollars a year to help kids in the Caribbean, smart kids in the Caribbean, get scholarships to go to university. I'm really proud of that. Why? Because I was a smart enough kid, but when I left my dad's house, I didn't have the money to put myself through university the traditional way. My whole education could have ended there. When I was growing up in Jamaica, there was a lot of very smart kids older than me that their parents just couldn't afford to send them to college. And as a result of that, their potential ended there. And they went to take just an average job, sweep the street, work in a sugarcane plantation. There's a lot of kids that I grew up with, that my brothers grew up with, my older brothers, that were just whip smart, whip smart. And because the getting into high school in Jamaica is almost like a lottery system, some would get in and some won't. And the ones who got into high school would graduate with all this, you know, you have to take all levels and so on, very great credentials, but that's it. So the kid who didn't get into high school and the kids who graduated from high school, because a kid who graduated from high school couldn't afford university, they're both working on a sugarcane plantation together. One has massive potential. The other one knows that my future is going to be working on a sugarcane plantation. But because of a lack of access to capital, money, support, both of those kids are doing jobs that they shouldn't be doing. At least one shouldn't be doing. So when I look at philanthropy, I use my grandmother as an example because my grandmother raised all these grandkids. She had no money. She had to work the plantation job to send us to school, to feed us. So if I now get to a point in my career where I can look back and see how can I help all those people along and let them live their full potential, their full potential, and all it takes is a couple of dollars or some time on my part, why wouldn't I do that? I would be dishonoring the memory of my grandmother if I didn't do that. 
You've influenced a lot of change on Bay Street. What more would you like to see from corporate Canada? I would say we should be intentional about the changes that we want to see. As corporate leaders, we have so much power. We have so much power. My company, one of my companies, QM Environmental, for example, we hire 750 people. That's 750 families that are adding to the greatness of our society. And if I'm intentional about the makeup of those 750 people, nobody's gonna be left behind in our society. We're not gonna have communities that because they're an indigenous community, people can't afford proper drinking water. Now, if you have a job that's allow you to live a certain way, you can live in whatever neighborhoods that you wanna live in. You can take vacations with your family. You're not excluded from doing those things. So if we're intentional about being inclusive, we're not going to have these extremely impoverished society in a country like Canada. There are neighborhoods that we go to today in Toronto where kids can't afford to have a decent, a half-decent breakfast to go to school. And they can't afford to eat a lunch when they go to school in our society. And yet as leaders, we have an opportunity to change all that. We could, and we're not talking about just donating money. How about giving a job to those kids in those underserved communities? Let them know that they can be a part of your organization. Or those, the moms or dads, and say, we're gonna create opportunities for you within our organization. We're gonna create educational opportunities for you. Just like Stikeman Elliott did for me when I got into the mailroom and they were able to pay for my education. And that education led me to the path that I'm on right now, where now I'm hiring all kinds of people and I'm giving back to society. There's so many people with that potential, but as corporate leaders, we have to be intentional about who we hire, the makeup of our organization, and how we're gonna give back to our society and make the society better. I hear people go, Corporation have nothing to do, it should have nothing to do with social justice or social issues. Well, of course they should. Of course they should. You should have a corporate conscience. And when you look at some of the biggest atrocities in the world, the slave trade, you name them, those were businesses that created those problems for society because in the name of profit. But let's say, for example, they had a social conscience. They wouldn't exploit people for profit that make sure that you have a living wage. So when I look at my grandmother, for example, raising all these kids, living in a plantation, she couldn't afford to even raise one kid on that compensation that she was getting. She couldn't even look after herself on that compensation. But yet the people who owned the plantation were making millions of dollars exporting their sugarcane, their banana, their coconut abroad in US dollars, in euros, in British pounds, and reaping amazing benefits at the expense of these workers. And so we're seeing the same thing today in Ontario. Those farmers that are coming from Jamaica and other places, they have deplorable living conditions that they're living in. But yet you go to the grocery stores, you want a peach, how much do you pay for it? A lot of money. You want a banana, a lot of money, whatever you want, but yet the workers aren't seeing the benefits. 
And so we have, as corporate leaders, we need to have conscience in terms of how we deal with things like those. Wes, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for taking the time with me for our podcast. Your rise to success is a compelling story. I'm excited to read your book. Here's an opportunity for you to give it one last plug. <laughs> well, Rich, thank you, first of all. And uh, I'll make sure that you get an autographed copy of No Bootstrap When You're Barefoot, October 4th. You got to read it. And it's not just for underserved people, by the way. The book is, a, is an amazing Canadian story. It's amazing Canadian dream story. I love this country. And if I didn't get the opportunity to come here, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. It doesn't really mean that everybody is, you're just going to land in Canada, all of a sudden you're going to get, you'd be successful. The building blocks are there for everyone to be successful in Canada, but it's up to leaders to pave that way for them. Leaders were the ones, great leaders were the ones who helped me along the way from my first mailroom job to starting my own company. We need more of those leaders who are intentional about making changes and about making the society better. Thank you for listening to TMX Presents, the podcast. For more information on TSX and TSX Venture Exchange investing information, please subscribe to our monthly Investor Insights Report and our Market Intelligence Report by visiting tsx.com MIG. And for more insights from Capital Markets leaders and my TMX colleagues, please visit tmx.com POV. Thank you.